Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even why we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our Heavenly Father, we come together to be reminded of the truth this morning, the truth of who you are, the truth of what you've done, and the truth that changes us so completely. The truth that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Father, I pray this morning that in our time you would be glorified. I pray that the words that people hear would be yours and not mine. I pray, Father, that from here we would live out of this new identity in boldness and in power. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Why did God save you? You know, that, that question presupposes uh, that you believe that God did save you. And you might be here this morning and, uh, and you would say that God hasn't saved you, and, and not because you haven't asked him to or wanted him to, but because you don't really need him to. And you would say this morning that you don't really need a savior, you need a helper. You, you don't need Jesus to die for you. You need Jesus to guide you. You don't need Jesus to, to propitiate God's wrath for you. God's not really angry with you. You need Jesus to empathize with you and to be compassionate towards your plight in life. You don't need to be saved. You need a helper. Maybe another question for you to ponder this morning is, why does God love you? If you would say that, that God does indeed love you, why? Is it because you've made yourself lovable to him? Is it because you've done something that he especially admires? Is it because your stance on a particular issue, a for or against? Does, does God love you because of your work ethic? Does he love you because you are a red-blooded American 
who cries when you sing God bless America at a sports game? Does he love you because of your politics? Does he love you because you don't cheat on your taxes? Does he love you because you're generous? Does he love you? Fill in the blank. Have you done something that has made yourself lovable to God? This morning, um, we continue our, our Ephesians series. And um, Ephesians, for, if this is your first time joining us, this is a book that's all about church. Paul wrote this, uh, this book to, uh, to a bunch of churches in and around a city called Ephesus, uh, which is modern-day modern Turkey, and, uh, and he wrote this to answer questions about what, what is the church? How, how is the church coming to existence? Who, who leads it? What is the church about? What is it for? What does it do? What is the church? And so two weeks ago, we began Paul's letter, and we looked how Paul begins with praise. He begins with praise, and he says that we should glorify God because before the foundations of the world were even laid, he chose you in him. And Paul doesn't think that this is something to divide over. Paul thinks this is something to rejoice over. And so he calls us to glorify God for what he's done. Last week, we saw how uh, this choice or this, this, this praise turns to prayer. And, and, and Paul prays that uh, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that, that we would have the eyes to see Jesus for who he is right now, that, that he, is, he is alive that he is empowered, that, that, that he, ha, he has all authority, that, that his enemies have been subject to him, and that, that he has been placed as the head of the church. And Paul says that, that if we can have the eyes of our, of our, eye, our hearts open and, and we can see Jesus, see him exalted and, and resurrected and enthroned and victorious and, and head, if we could see him that way, then, then we would be a people of such hope. We would know our value. We would, we would know our worth. We would know the wealth that we have in Christ. We, we would know the power and the strength that we have in Him. If we could see. And so Paul begins in chapter 2 this morning where we're at. And he begins by telling us of, of what we were before Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we see these two beautiful words. But but God, in, in my estimation, these are, are the two most beautiful words in the English language. But God, there's a, a little book I stumbled upon uh, years ago by a guy named Casey Ludi, who uh, the title of the book is But God, the Two Words at the Heart of the Gospel. And, and it's really short and brief, but, but in it, he, he goes through Scripture and he points out how in, in all of these salvation stories within the Bible, we see these words, but God, as they contrast the, the fall of humanity, the depth of our depravity with, with the gloriousness of his salvation. And so he goes through these. I won't go through them all this morning, but just for a few of them. In Genesis chapter 8, 1, we see one of the first ones. In Genesis chapter uh, 7 and before that, we see that there's this flood, that God brings about this destruction on the earth because of man's sin. And, and, and God, he, he calls this guy Noah and his family to save them and to rescue them. And so in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we read this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. God judged. God intervened, and, 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 and but God saved. We see this again in Exodus. God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and uh, God raises up a deliverer and sends them sends Moses to, to Egypt, and, and God 
pours out these ten plagues, these act of judgment on, uh, on Egypt in order to, to release the children of Israel. And, and upon their relief, release in, in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus 13, 18, we read this. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up and out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. They were enslaved, but God saved. We see this throughout Scripture. Another uh, one uh, it comes from Nehemiah 9.17. Nehemiah looks back on um, the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, and, and many of the, the Israelites, they, they were angry with God for, for bringing them out of Egypt and, and having them in the wilderness, and they weren't to the promised promised land yet and so they're grumbling against God and many of the, of the Israelites actually wanted to go back to slavery they wanted to go back to their taskmasters and Nehemiah says this they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt but you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. And throughout Scripture, we see these stories of salvation, and in the center of these stories, we see these words, but God. Psalm 40, Acts 13, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 2, and yes, right here in Ephesians 2, 4. The author points up, holds up these words, but God, and he uses them as a, as a stark contrast. The backdrop of our sin and the gloriousness of God's salvation, but God. And Lutz writes this, he says, to the left of but God in scripture appear some of the worst human atrocities, characterized by disobedience and rebellion. To the left of but God is hopelessness, darkness, and death, but to its right, following but God, readers of scripture will find hope, light, and life. Following God's intervention, the story of scriptures becomes one of grace, righteousness, and justice. James Montgomery Boyce said this, May I put it simply, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. And so this morning, we're going to begin to look at the words to the left of but God at the beginning of Ephesians 2. What were we but God. And the first thing that Paul tells us is that we were dead. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Um, earlier uh, this week, my wife and I, we were watching a, a movie um, based on a true story. And whenever we watch a movie based on a true story, I like to go and find out how much was added to the true story. And so oftentimes what you find out, uh, and as in the case was with, with this movie, is that there were whole characters that were added that had never existed put in the story. And whole storylines created to embellish the story. Right? That, that on its own, this story, in, in its truthfulness, to the screenwriter or to the producer or to the director, it wasn't exciting enough. You have to create other things to make it more exciting and more real and more phenomenal, right? You have to sensationalize it. And that's what kind of world we live in, right? With our news. No longer can you just know facts. They have to be sensationalized facts. So when we look at Ephesians 2.1, we see Paul, and he says here, you were dead. 
Do we think that he's being sensational? Do we think that he is, he, he's, he's adding some dramatic effect? Right? Would you sit here this morning and say, you know, I don't, I don't think I was dead. I, before Christ, I wasn't dead. I mean, I, w- I might have been asleep. And I needed Jesus to come along and, and, and wake me up. But I wasn't dead. Spiritually speaking, like, I may have been confused. And I needed Jesus to come along and, and give me some clarity. But I wasn't dead. I may have been intoxicated by the things of this world. But I wasn't dead. I needed Jesus to give me a strong cup of black coffee and sober me up. But I wasn't dead. Is, is Paul, is, is, is he dramatizing our true nature before Christ? No, when Paul says you were dead, he means you were dead. You were a corpse. You were roadkill. Spiritually speaking, before Christ, you, you were dead. And I was dead. And that's the reality of what we were before Christ because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. You were dead. The doctrine of, of inherited sin. You see, we go back to the garden, what we find is that our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were made fully alive. That before God, spiritually and physically, fully alive before the face of God. And he gave them everything that they needed and everything that they wanted. And it was him and it was them, face to face in relationship with one another. But at the center of this existence, there was a choice. Embodied by a fruit tree. And in that fruit tree, God basically said this. Choose me and choose life. Disobey me and choose death. And if you know the story, you know, of course, that Adam and Eve, uh, they were tempted to believe that God wasn't who he said he was, and they disbelieved him, and they disobeyed him, and they reached out, and they took the fruit of that tree, and they ate it, and they dropped dead in that moment, spiritually speaking. And though it took years for their physical bodies to catch up to that death, in that moment, they fell dead in the garden. And it wasn't because of punishment, it was a consequence. If you unplug from the author of life, the consequence is death. They were dead. And every descendant of theirs has been born spiritually dead, including you and I. Completely unable to do anything to save us. We were dead. Paul says in here, this word, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses. Uh, The word trespasses, it it literally means to step over. So what it it literally means. So like, you come to a fence and it says, no trespassing, and you step over it. Like, it's an intentional, willful act stepping over the rule, Right? Uh, we live in, in a, an old house here in Xenia, and, uh, and, and I love our house, um, but, but our house is creaky. It makes a lot of noise when you walk through our house. Old wood floors that just, they make sounds, and they groan, and they squeak, and, and, and the thing is, is that um, occasionally I need to get up really early in the morning, and I need to do that in a way that doesn't wake our dog. We have a yellow lab, and, uh, and, and Buck has a tail that's like a, it's like a baseball bat. And, and when he's happy, he just walks around the house just swinging the baseball bat around. And he hits the floor, and he hits the walls, and he hits... And, 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 
just, it's just so loud. If Buck is awake, then the house is awake. And so at 4 o'clock in the morning, I've got to navigate this minefield that is our staircase in order not to wake the dog. So it takes intentional steps. And you step over one, you know that's going to be too squeaky. You've got to set up on the right side of this one, but then you've got to step in the middle of this one, and then you've got to you know, do and then just all the way down. So you don't wake Buck, and you don't wake the house. Intentional steps. And here's what the word trespasses means. It means this, this intentional rebellion against God. That our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they reached out their, their hand and they, and they took that fruit from the tree, it's not like they tripped and fell over sin. It's not like they didn't see it. It's not like they didn't know what they were doing. It was intentional. It was an intentional act of rebellion. That's not all that Paul says. He says, trespasses and sins. The word sins there is, is, is the Greek word uh, hamartia. It means, it means missing the mark. But you see, where, where trespasses is, is intentional acts of, of commission sin, th this word is, is acts of, of, of omission. It's failure. See, in the beginning, our first parents were created to be image bearers of God, and they were meant to reflect accurately to all of creation what God was like. But instead of magnifying who God was, they wanted to magnify who they were. They had this God-given purpose. Failed. They failed at it. And as a result, sin becomes a part of our reality. And we were born spiritually dead. And when Paul says to you, you were dead, we don't see a God who's saying, he's not, he's not, he's not making it up. He's not dramatizing it. It's the truth of what we are. Second thing that we see here to the left of but God is enslavement. We were enslaved. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul says, following the course of this world. He's talking about being enslaved. Like a train on a track, you can only go where the track goes. That's us before Christ. Enslaved. And we were enslaved to three things, Paul says. The world, the devil, and our flesh. Looking at the world first. Paul doesn't just mean our physical reality in a certain time and place when he says the world he's talking about a whole value system that is opposed to God the world is the place in which sin sin is acceptable and righteousness seems strange in the beginning we were created to have this relationship with God where he is the one that that reigns and rules over us and we in humility serve under him and 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 this is the order and the nature of the way things were meant to be but with the fall we turn that upside down and this god that we were meant to serve is now the god that we expect to serve us because we've made ourselves gods and in the beginning we had this relationship with one another we were meant to see one another as image bearers of god and to see the value of one another because you point to god 
But in the fall, that is turned upside down. So we don't see the value in one another anymore. Instead, we see people that we can use for our own glory. We've turned the world upside down. And we are slaves to it. The second thing that Paul says we are slaves to is the devil, Satan. Following the prince of the power of the air. We are the sons and daughters of disobedience. Satan is your dad before Christ. When, when Paul says the spirit that is now at work, he's referring to this, this force or this mood that is, that is active in the heart of an unbeliever which is under the control of Satan. You're a slave to Satan before Christ. Third thing he says so we're a slave to our flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. God made us with desires that are not bad, they're good. But we have taken these good things and we've made them ultimate things. So that hunger becomes gluttony and sleep becomes sloth and sex becomes lust. Things of the body, but also things of the mind intellectually prideful full of false ambition and this rejection of truth we're slaves before but God we were dead and we were slaves slaves of the world slaves of Satan and slaves of the flesh the third thing that we are is condemned Paul says we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind that because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against God, because of our failure to be what he made us to be, we were under condemnation. You need to understand this morning that when we say that you've been saved, you need to know what it is that you've been saved from. You have been saved from the righteous wrath of God against you because of your rebellion against him. What you've been saved from is the wrath of God. And you need to understand something this morning, that, that the wrath of God is not like the wrath of man. The wrath of God is not a bad temper. It's not spite or malice. It's not animosity. It's not revenge. It's not arbitrary. The wrath of God is pure and holy and righteous. John Stott defines it like this in a helpful way. He says, It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. We are under the wrath of God because of our rebellion against him. You see, before but God, we were dead, we were enslaved, and we were condemned, and we had no hope. But God. But God, you see how beautiful those words are but God he changes what we are verse 4 being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, do you see, before Christ, you were dead. You were dead. You were completely dead. There was nothing that you could do to save yourself. You were completely incapacitated to do anything. You were dead. But God, in Jesus, you have new life. Do you see, before, but God, you were enslaved. You were enslaved, but God, and now you have been resurrected with Christ and you sit in the heavenlies with him. Free. Before, but God, you were condemned, and now you sit with Christ in the heavenlies, justified and righteous. But God, you see, God in Jesus Christ has, has completely transformed who and what you are. Praise God. Completely gives us a new identity. We were spiritually dead, but now we live. We were condemned, but now we're seated with Christ on his throne. We were slaves, now we're glorified with him. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. And now we're adopted sons and daughters of the Father. We were objects of wrath, we've now become objects of grace. Look back at verse 8 with me. For by Christ you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, not only has your identity changed, but it's been changed in such a way that it could never revert back. Paul, when he says uh, that, he's, that we've been saved by faith, the, the, the verb there is a, is a present participle in Greek. And what that means is that the saving action that took place in the past is now an abiding condition in the present and is a present and a secure reality in the future. Another way of understanding this is that God saved you in the past, he's saving you in the present, and he will save you in the future. This is a condition that cannot change. Look, you were dead. You were completely incapable of saving yourself, and he saved you then. You are now incapable of losing that salvation. He holds you and he keeps you in that. You cannot revert back to your, your former state of death. You cannot revert back to your former state of enslavement. You cannot revert back to your, your former state of condemnation. You are alive, you are free, and you are righteous before God. And nothing can change that. Praise God. Nothing can change that. And, and that's what you've become because of Christ. He completely changes our identity, but, but I want you also to see that he also changes our purpose. See, at one time, we walked in the trespasses and our sins, and that was our path. We have a different path now. Let's look at verse 7 first. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? It's to create a monument to his own glory. You see, when we embrace the truth of this, and we walk around proclaiming it, I was dead. 
but God. And now in Christ, I'm alive. I was a slave. I was a slave to this world. I was a slave to Satan. I was a slave to my flesh, but God. And in Christ, I am free. I was condemned. I was condemned to suffer the wrath of God on my head for what I've done. But God, in Christ Jesus, justifies me and makes me righteous. Do you see, when we go around proclaiming the truth of what's happened to us, we become a monument to the glory of God so that the world would look at us and once again see a restored picture of what God is like in His kindness and His love and His mercy and His grace. That the world would see us and see how great He is. It's a purpose that we have because of Him. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before we walked in sin, before we walked in our trespasses, before we walked in our slavery, now we walk in the good works he's prepared for us to do. We talk a lot about salvation of works, and we need to understand as Christians that we have been saved by grace, as Paul says. You might be here this morning, you might be thinking that you need to make yourself lovable to God. Or that in some way you already have made yourself lovable to God so that he would save you based on what you have done for him. And you need to know that that's garbage. It's a lie. It's false. Because if it's based on what you can do, then it's also based on what you can't do. And you could lose that. But it's not. It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done for you. Works don't result in your salvation. Salvation comes before works. Works are the result of salvation. Salvation is not the result of works. We have been created in Christ Jesus, remade in Christ Jesus, because God has a plan for us and a purpose for us. We get to participate in this redemptive thing that God is doing in our world. We're responsible for break it, and now God is letting us fix it with him. We have this purpose. See, as we get to wrap up there, there's two things that you really need to know before we leave. There's two things that you need to take from this. The first is this. If you don't know the gravity of what you were before Christ, then you will not know the gravity of God's love for you. I'm going to say that again. If you don't know the gravity of what you were before Christ, you will not know the gravity of God's love for you. The bigger your sin gets, the greater his love for you gets. Second thing you need to see, if you don't know the gravity of what you were before Christ, then you don't know the gravity of the state of your neighbor who doesn't know. If you don't know the gravity of what you were before Christ, you do not understand the position that your unbelieving friend, neighbor, co-worker is in. You may have people in your life that you will never tell about Jesus because in your mind they're good people. He's a good husband. He's a good father. He works hard. He, he always helps me out. He's, he's a good friend. He's a good neighbor. He's always there for other people. He's generous. He's kind. Does he have a relationship with God? 
Absolutely not. Is he dead spiritually? Yes. Is he enslaved to the world and the devil and the flesh? Yes. Is he condemned under the wrath of God? Yes, but he's a really good guy. See, the truth is, if you don't know the gravity of what you before Christ, you, you will not tell your, your, your friends and neighbors who need Jesus about Jesus. You won't tell them. Pendulette said it best, and he's an atheist. He said, for Christians who believe that there's a hell, to, to not proselytize, if they believe that, that people will go to hell without Jesus, to not tell people about Jesus, how much do you have to hate somebody to do that? That's coming from an atheist. See, if we don't understand the gravity of what we were before Christ, that we're not going to see our neighbors in the state in which they are living and dying in. And to see them as Jesus sees them, and to love them with the love of Jesus, and to proclaim Jesus to them. Have you ever been to a funeral where the, the person who has passed away ha has spent their life as far from God as they could possibly be? They wanted nothing to do with God. Nothing wanted to do with anything of God. And yet, they are eulogized by people as being a really good person. And they are said to be in a better place. And ironically, they're with God, the one they spent their whole life running from. And that is not the truth. Until we understand the, the weight and the gravity of who we were before Christ, we will not see our neighbor in their need and love them. Be that monument to them that shows them I was dead. But Christ made me alive. I was a slave, but God made me alive and free. I was condemned, and now I'm justified. To be these monuments of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. Oh, if we would only embrace the truth of what we were before Christ. It will change you completely. It will change your worship and it will change how you see the world around you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you so love the world that you sent your son. The reality is, you're only a God of wrath because you're a God of love. wrath is not like ours it's holy, it's righteous and Lord Jesus you came you took on flesh and you stood in between us and the Father and you willingly absorbed the wrath of your Father in your flesh, you took the blame for us and we got your righteousness and you did that because you loved us. Not because we were lovable. Not because we did anything. We were completely dead. We were unable to do anything for you. You loved us. And so you called us into your salvation. I pray that these words would forever change us. 
that they would not fill us with, with pride or with apathy. But they would embolden us. Lord Jesus, give us the love that you have for the world you came to serve. In your name we pray.